Well, hi, welcome to the Kelly Cotrera podcast for Monday, August the 24th. Yesterday, sunbathers at Bluffers Point certainly got a surprise. They were covered in a massive sand cloud after a chunk of the bluffs fell. It highlights the danger at not only the top, but at the bottom of the Scarborough Bluffs. We'll talk to an erosion expert on that coming up and also touch on those plaques that are popping up around Toronto. They look like the historical plaques outside points of interest in the city, but they focus on the slave-owning past of prominent historical families, the why and how of those plaques coming up. But let's talk about the big news. Aaron O'Toole is now the leader of the Conservative Party. Here to talk about it, Jonathan Malloy. He's a political science professor. We've talked to him before on the show from Carleton University. Jonathan, I'm so happy you could spare some time for us today. No problem, Kelly. So I guess um, the question is, you know, uh, before we get into who Aaron O'Toole is, for people that don't know, is most people expected to wake up to the news that Peter McKay is the new leader of the Conservative Party. What happened at at that convention yesterday to, to end up with the result that we did? Uh, well, the short answer is it's, it was a multi-ballot uh, convention, so uh, McKay uh, did did lead it first, uh, but he got a relatively small portion of the vote, about uh, 30, uh, 33%, I think. And then as it went to more ballots, the support of the other uh, people that dropped out uh, really went to O'Toole. So it's, that's what happens in a multiple-ballot situation. You, you, you might win the first time, but you've got to win at the end, and O'Toole clearly won at the end. And why did, you know, why do you think people rallied behind O'Toole? Did he get a lot of support, I'm hearing, from the social conservatives? And why is that? Well, I think two, two reasons. Certainly O'Toole certainly did focus more on uh, on sort of appealing to core party members. Peter McKay had more of a growth mindset. He was trying to bring in new people to the party. He was, he was looking into the general election, trying to have that broad appeal. Whereas O'Toole really just played very much to the party, saying he was the true blue conservative and, and McKay was, was not that way. So that, you know, he, he, I think in, in the end, that is, that's the smarter way to win the leadership, although not necessarily for the election. But then also, as you said, it was the social conservatives. So the other candidates, Lewis and particularly Sloan, uh, were, were strong social conservatives. And O'Toole was certainly more careful to, uh, to cultivate that, that group, to not be too critical of Lewis and Sloan, and to try and play for their, their, their second and third choices. So uh, that, those two things really helped uh, O'Toole. The core, I think, was his, his first part, was that he focused very much on the existing party members, uh, which, which helped him as well. But then also certainly the, the support of uh, the social conservatives swung very much to O'Toole rather than McKay, and that put him over the top. Okay, the question on a lot of people's minds is, who the heck is Aaron O'Toole? Um, He is, other other than the guy, I think most people might remember him for being the guy that promised to do away with uh, CBC TV. So what exactly did he stand for? Who is he? What's his past? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of his past, I mean, he has he's had a fairly eclectic background. He did. He he's a lawyer. He served in the uh, the military for a while. Uh, he was elected in, in, in a by election and was a cabinet minister just at the end of the Harper era. So you don't really remember him from the Harper government because he just came in at the end. He was minister of veterans affairs for about a year before before the end. So he doesn't really have that that public profile to say Peter McKay, who's been in public life for over twenty years, uh, has. Whereas O'Toole's got a bit more of an eclectic background, but less of a political background. I said military uh, corporate lawyer, that sort of thing there. Um, what he stands for, that's a good question, because, you know, he ran for the leadership back in 2017, and he ran this time. It was almost, to me, it was almost two different old tools. Uh, this one, he was a much more scrappier, uh, more right-wing, uh, whereas the last time he was more of a consensus sort of establishment candidate. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm going to say honestly, I mean, I think he stands for the core principles of the Conservative Party of Canada, but it's hard to pick up something where he really has a distinctive 
uh, view or, or mindset that is necessarily that different from Peter McKay or that different from Stephen Harper or even Andrew Shear sometimes there. Um, he's, a bit of a, he's a bit of a blank slate, in my opinion. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we're going to see exactly what he stands for uh, coming up now. Well, a blank slate could be good, be you know, because uh, you could build on what we really need. And one of the things that the conservatives need, they really need a um, a plan to deal with uh, the environment. They, well, they, they certainly need some sort of plan to do with the environment. And uh, I mean, McKay and O'Toole and all the others did come up with with various sort of approaches to it. I think the problem is that the party doesn't really have a single plan. They know that they're mm-hmm. certainly against the whatever whatever Justin Trudeau decides. They're against it. <laughs> uh, they're going to be against the carbon taxes and stuff. But they have trouble articulating exactly what what they do stand for, and, and especially a way that appeals nationally, whether it's in you know downtown Toronto or or rural Alberta. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure that they really have a strong plan. That's one of the stumbling blocks. Is that they're much better articulating what they're against, especially Justin Trudeau, and they've got more difficulty articulating exactly what they're for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I know someone who's a member of the Conservative Party, and he kept thinking, anytime that he got an email from one of the leadership uh, hopefuls, it was bashing Trudeau. But he's like, he kept emailing back, okay, but what is your plan? What is your platform? What do you stand for? And it was just crickets. Let's um, focus on yesterday's delay. There was a huge glitch. Apparently, they an, a, a machine that's used to automatically open up the envelopes that hold the ballots was tearing the ballads, and they had to kind of uh, agree on on what was, you know, everybody had to look at each ballad and agree on what it said. So the holdup, it, it wasn't until one o'clock in the morning when O'Toole um, made his acceptance speech. I'm just going to play a little bit of it. H- have a listen. We just emerged from the first wave of the largest health crisis in our history. Premiers across our country have shown real leadership amid the COVID-19 crisis. They were looking out for you. Justin Trudeau, Bill Morneau, and the Liberals showed once again that even amid a national crisis, they were still interested in looking after their friends. We can rebuild our great country while protecting Canadians from the ongoing threat of COVID-19. We can get Canadians back to work, be proud of the things we grow, build, and produce in Canada again. We must have a government that will keep us safe and ensure that we are never ill-prepared again. To do that, we need a leader with real-world experience and someone who is not afraid to make the tough decisions. A leader who cares more about keeping Canadians safe and united than about his personal image and the interests of insiders. We need a leader who puts Canadians first and will stand up for Canada and our interests in a challenging world where we've lost the respect of our friends and allies. The world still needs more Canada. It just needs less Justin Trudeau. Okay, so that is Aaron O'Toole. He is the new conservative leader now that Sheer is officially out. O'Toole is in. Um, Jonathan, two things struck me about that acceptance speech. Um, A, is that guy has a lot of energy at one o'clock in the morning, and B, is more of the same. This is the tactic that Sheer took when he went up against um, Justin Trudeau in the last election, it was all about Trudeau and very little about what he stood for. I mean, there are a lot of the new leader needs to do this and that and this and that, but we better see him come up with what that is and what this looks like. Um, because 
the real question is, can he beat Justin Trudeau in an election? Exactly. And I mean, it's, as you pointed out, um, the, um, the party often loves going after Justin Trudeau personally, uh, because among, among conservatives, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of dislike of Justin Trudeau. And, 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 and I mean, that was effective Mr. O'Toole just at the beginning. Uh, Mr. O'Toole went for the party base, whereas Peter McKay kind of was trying, looking ahead a bit to the next step, and that cost him, obviously. O'Toole was playing to the party base, which, which really dislikes Justin Trudeau. Uh, but, I mean, my, my, my view is that I don't, think, I don't think people in the party fully understand that most Canadians don't dislike Justin Trudeau. Uh, and they're always going after him personally, particularly, you know, attacking the idea of corruption, things like that. Even, even in, in, the, in the acceptance speech show, O'Toole was talking about Trudeau looking after his friends and stuff with, with the, 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 we, the we charity uh, uh, affair and things. But I think mo- most Canadians don't think that Justin Trudeau is personally corrupt. That's not the issue. Uh, it might be the issue about the $300 billion deficit we're facing <laughs> and the idea that sort of government is the solution for everything. I think that's, that's worth targeting. But they keep personalizing about, about Trudeau, and, and O'Toole really did it there in, in the speech. And, uh, and everything else he said was, was pretty vague there. And again, so that, that goes over well with, with the party. And even last night, he was kind of speaking, I think, still to the party base a bit. Uh, but, but he's got to pivot. And the, party, the party's got to understand that most Canadians don't dislike Justin Trudeau. And, and it has to speak more broadly about this sort of this visceral dislike of the Trudeau name. What does that say about our ethics, though? I mean, this is a guy who's broken ethics laws uh, not once but twice um, and is being investigated again, Justin Trudeau being the guy. Um, So if we don't have a problem with his, uh, you know, morals or ethics, what does that say about us as, as Canadians? Well, I'd, I'd be afraid to say it's not the Canadians don't have a problem with the fact that that the prime minister seems to keep breaking ethics rules. It's it's more the it's more the the overall image of what's the what's the main problem with Justin Trudeau. And certainly one one issue is that he does seem to have some awfully sloppy uh, standards and approaches there. But again, if you think about what what are Canadians going to make a ballot question about, uh, it's certainly not really the prime minister's personal conduct and and and, mm-hmm. and things like that. It's it's going to be about, as I said, about the big, the big role of government, about the role of the federal government about the, about all the responses uh, to, uh, to to COVID, uh, and you know those those are the are the big questions there. So it's not about dismissing it, but I think it's we we've seen that clearly <laughs> the ethics concerns about about Trudeau do not really stick. Uh, uh, beyond people that have already decided they dis- they dislike Justin Trudeau, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to motivate uh, swing voters in other ways. Otherwise, Andrew Scheer would have become prime minister last year, and uh, he and he didn't. Okay, so Aaron O'Toole, a um, bit of a surprise. We were expecting McKay to be the leader of the Conservative Party. I mean, he was a forerunner moving into this um, leadership race yesterday. It didn't go his way. But is it um, in the Conservatives' best interest that uh, Justin Trudeau's hit the pause button on government right now and prorogued uh, Parliament? Is this a good thing for the O'Toole camp so they can get all their ducks in order and figure out what they stand for? Well, frankly, I think I think it is. Uh, the prime minister, by proroguing parliament uh, last week, the prime minister uh, got a lot of outrage. Conservatives that she you know, shut down the committee inquiries and into that the wee charity issue and things. Uh, but to me, frankly, it has given the party some breathing room. They do have some weeks now for their new leader to consolidate to think of what they're doing, uh, and then they can they can come back and they can come back railing that Justin Trudeau shut down parliament, even though it kind it kind of it's given them a break as well there. So I mean, it, in, in the end, that will work out well for the party. Jonathan, I want to thank you for your time. You have yourself a fantastic morning. You too.
Cheers. That's Jonathan Malloy. He is a political science professor at Carleton University, giving us some background on who Aaron O'Toole is and what we can expect moving forward. He's the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Holy shit. Oh my God, babe, it's coming. Um, a cliff just collapsed. Oh my God. What the f- that is Michaela Hawthorne and somebody that's hanging out with her on uh, Scarborough Bluffs Beach. Uh, this is yesterday around four o'clock. She is just filming as you do when you're, you know, you've got the ability to film whatever you want. Um, and, and she posted it up to, to social media because while she was filming, a chunk of the bluffs fell and there's this massive cloud coming towards them and you can just see it like moving towards them like Stephen King's mist. It is nutty and uh, and it is clearly a danger that a lot of people are unaware of and were unaware of as they started to run from the sand cloud. A large portion of Scarborough Bluffs collapsed yesterday. So here to talk about the erosion um, that is leading to this is, go figure, the erosion risk manager at the Toronto Regional Conservation Authority. We went to the right guy. Matt Johnson, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Hello, good uh, good to be here. How are you this morning? I'm great. I mean, I'm happy I wasn't hanging out at Scarborough Bluffs Beach yesterday when this big chunk of the Scarborough Bluffs came down. How often do we see parts of the bluff falling off? It's it's interesting because it's hard to predict. This, uh, this year, though, we've seen a couple major movements. There is the one this weekend, and even the past weekend, there is another significant one. So it's all weather dependent, and a lot of factors go in, but it's pretty common. What kind of factors lead to chunks of the bluff falling down? So uh, while they're a beautiful feature, the Scarborough Bluffs are predominantly comprised of sand. And while like uh, they, have, they look stable at times and look stronger than they actually are, uh, weather, uh, just uh, high amounts of precipitation, even just wind drying out, basically almost any variable can contribute to it. And then it's hard to hard to figure out how deep the issue is. So sometimes it might be small little slides or just a bit of material on the surface. But sometimes, like what you saw in that video, a big chunk of the bluff will go down at once, and that can be quite dangerous. Do we know how big of a chunk fell? Not not with certainty, but we're going to try to look at some of the photos we have uh, on our record and do some kind of comparison. But I haven't actually been able to see see conditions of uh, that area quite yet. Yeah, I, I mean, p- most people think of sand. They're like, well, it's, it's fairly light. How much damage could it do? But when sand's falling in a chunk form, there's a real potential to injure someone below. Exactly. And like the, the risk can't be overstated. Like the city and TRCA both are very mindful of that. And there's barriers at the top to prevent people from even getting uh, close to the edge. But that's actually where we see a lot of the hazards in addition to the risk below. Some people like to be up at the very top there to look at the scenic sight lines. But all at any time, all that, all that sand could give and you could have a major movement. It, what is concerning about yesterday, you know, no one was hurt when this big chunk of uh, of sand, and we have no idea how big it was yet. As you say, you're going to try and figure that out. Um, but it, one of the things that's really concerning is that this happened near the lookout point at the bluffs, which is where people stand. How concerned are you about that? And would be, you know, do we have to look at maybe even fencing off that area? I... Honestly, like that's probably one of the largest concerns we do have. And this year in particular, 
Yeah, that, at the west end of Bluffers Park, there by that lookout and those other features, there is even with the lower water levels, right where the where the where the rocks actually dropped yesterday. People, I've seen many people walk across the actual water there when the, the lake levels are low enough, and that's right in the area where you have that almost sheer vertical drop of where all the rocks fall down. So I do believe that uh, general public safety and use of the area is something that both TRC and the city are watching very diligently, and it might be necessary uh, to add additional restrictions to those locations just to protect public safety. So above and below, some way to keep people off of the lookout points at the bluff, because apparently even as early as this morning, people were still at those, you know, taking selfies at the edge of the lookout point, just close to where that piece of, of sand fell down. Is there any way to know that you're standing on, on, on a part of the bluffs that could be unstable? There are a few signs you can look for, but in all honesty, like even they're not a good indication of the stability, like in general. Like, you can look for little cracks on the grass, what are, what are called tension cracks, but I also don't want to give a false sense of security because even if you don't see those, there could be deeper stability, instability issues that are not visible at the surface that could trigger a larger slide that still puts at risk. So in, in, in general, there's no safe distance uh, close to the edge of the bluffs. What does this mean for people who have homes that are close to the edge of the bluff? Should they be concerned about the fact that we're, you know, seeing chunks of the bluff go down? There's, there definitely is a longer-term concern with erosion uh, risks. One of the benefits that you can kind of see in even Bluffers Park itself, it actually protects against wave action. So erosion can come from a variety of different forms. But what I would say in a lot of the homes in the bluffs, they're benefiting from having shoreline structures that are protecting against some of the wave action erosion from Lake Ontario. And while the bluffs might still continue to erode and recede to link it to a stable angle, there's a lot of homes that are outside of the hazard location, but there are still a few that are at risk longer term. A large portion of that at Scarborough Bluffs when it fell yesterday, um, people are saying it sounded like an explosion. Why would it? Is that just the velocity of the sand going down and just the weight of it hitting? What would cause an explosion-like sound in that situation? That, that's kind of what my, like, the number one cause I would believe would be just, like, the cause of the impact from when the actual material fell. So it would have been quite a, quite a, quite a distance it was falling, and it was nearly vertical in some of those, in those locations there. So when it hit the talus or the, the material collected at the bottom of the bluff, that's most likely what triggered the large explosion-like sound. Could have been also at the point of when the the, tr- the collapse started, but that's not as likely in the sand-type failures. Is there any other area in your mind that's as worrying as the Scarborough Bluffs when it comes to uh, erosion in, around the uh, lakeshore? Um, along along lakeshore in general, I would say the Scarborough Bluffs, just because of the height and the nature of the, the sand material, they're a bit more erosion-prone and susceptible longer term. But in general, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of additional stress along the entire Lake Ontario waterfront. This year, we actually got quite fortunate that lake levels started to drop uh, a bit sooner. But we were almost worried that we were going to have another 2017-2019 high lake event. And those just caused catastrophic damage across the entire shoreline. Because you're talking waves that are higher than a lot of the infrastructure has been designed for. Right. And so that's a possibility, you know, moving forward. We always have to be aware of that. I I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for bringing your expertise to the show today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day.
That's Matt Johnson, Senior Manager of Erosion Risk Management at the Toronto Regional Conservation Authority, just talking about the collapse at Scarborough Bluffs. And the just to add a little bit onto this, uh, the Toronto Fire District uh, Chief Stephen Powell's saying, yeah, he's thankful no one was underneath the chunk of cliff when it collapsed. But that is something to keep in mind. This is a sand structure and stuff falls off all the time. That's why they're cautioning people not to climb it. Not only that, but because it costs a whack of money. And, and it's a drain on our resources when they have to rescue people and we hear about it all the time but uh something to keep in mind as well you know it's not just when you're on top of the bluffs that you have to worry about them collapsing it's at the bottom so yeah it might seem kind of cool to take a walk along the bluffs in the water you know in the shallows but also a dangerous prospect to keep in mind all right someone left plaques that look almost identical to the historical plaques in the city in various locations around toronto the difference is there's a defiant fist and the content they uh are um all about is about um the slave owning pasts of prominent historical families that have streets or landmarks named in their honor irene moore davis is an expert on the topic she's president of the essex county black historical research society she joins the show welcome to the show good morning so how did you become aware of these look-alike historical plaques in the city of toronto that was the most amazing thing somebody just sent me a photo that they had seen on social media um, of a of a plaque or a sign uh, about the Bobby family and said, you know that you're quoted on this sign and your name is on it? And I said, what? So I took a look and I was just astonished. Um, and then a few days after that, someone brought to my attention that there was also a sign on uh, Jarvis Street uh, regarding the Jarvis family that was also quoting me. So I really was very curious about who was responsible for these. So what's, what were you quoted as saying on the plaques? Well, I've done a lot of media um, the last few months about the history of slave-owning families of prominence in Windsor and Essex County, where I'm from. And so some of those uh, media uh, articles, especially the web articles, kind of made it set into the uh, frame of reference and field of vision of somebody in Toronto who became fascinated with them and and wanted to uh, include that information Um, in what was being done there. So the quote is about how the people that we uplift, the people that we honor, tell us a lot about ourselves as a society. And it's really, um, I'm just encouraging people to think about who we're lifting up, who we're naming things after, and what that says about our values. So that's uh, basically the quote that was used on both of these plaques. And apparently you uh, set out to find out who actually was responsible for the facts for the uh, the plaques rather what did you what did you learn so i mean initially because all of us who work on black history around the province of ontario and around canada have some connections there's a network of historians who do this kind of thing so i reached out to everybody that i knew in the gta that might have any knowledge of how these plaques had come about uh, my friend natasha henry the president of the ontario black history society people that i know at york and u of t and, and others um, and nobody had a clue so i simply used social media to say hey if if you know who's uh, been creating these signs please encourage the person to reach out to me i'd love to talk to them i'd love to know more about their project and and maybe even how we can support it so somebody did finally message me on Saturday morning and say, okay, it's me, and I don't want my name out there, but yeah, I'd love to work with historians more closely and, and do some more of this kind of work. So I think it's fascinating. It's, it's like a Black History Banksy, really. Yeah, as, that's a great way to put it. 
there are five <laughs> temporary plaques that were installed installed around the city. Um, I'm not sure if there's one on Dundas Street, but was Henry Dundas even on your radar before the guy who dug up the information about him uh, put forth that petition and asked the city to change the name of Dundas Street? And that guy is originally from Windsor, I should tell you. But um, no, he, he really wasn't. I mean, because uh, there are so many excellent people working on the history of slavery in Canada, I tend to focus my efforts on Windsor and Essex County more than anything else. There are some slave-owning families from Toronto that I'm aware of, certainly, but Dundas really wasn't. And I'm so pleased that that individual has uh, has gone forward with that petition. Whether or not we change street names or change the names of schools, that's a that's a decision that should be made community by community, and I'm not here to comment on what Torontonians should do. But my belief is that rather than renaming things, we should um, add to that. We should add information. We should add signage that tells a more complete and more nuanced, more complex um, retelling of the, the history of that person or family. And I think people will learn more from that personally. You know, I was just thinking to myself, I like the idea of these temporary plaques. I think it's important to know uh, the history as well and the full history, warts and all. Um, and and maybe then it leads to conversations on, okay, this person, we really do need to change the name of the street. Um, but is there in your mind any, I mean, that could be a very large plaque. Is there room for the good stuff along with the bad stuff in these plaques? Or is it important that we just punctuate the bad stuff? Because arguably people, I didn't even know who Henry Dundas was, but he must have done something good somewhere along the lines, or maybe we were just celebrating bad people through history. Well, I think it's complicated. I mean, if we use the Bobby family, for example, um, or even if we look at, you know, not just those who enslaved African and indigenous people in Canada, but maybe those that had negative attitudes and uh, harmful actions towards indigenous people or, or Asian Canadians. You know, if we look at those, those examples, it's really important that we don't um, completely uh, erase or delete the history. For one thing, yes, the Bobby family or Dundas or the Jarvis family or others, Peter Russell is another big one. Um, of course, they did some good stuff. But mm -hmm. what we've done historically is just to lift up these individuals who almost always are wealthy white men. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, we would also say heterosexual cisgender men as well. Um, and we've we've tended to just cover up anything that they did that was shady or not something that we would find compliant with our system of beliefs and values today. I think it's more important to engage in the conversation. So, yes, you can include the fact that, that somebody like a Peter Russell was president of the Legislative Council of Upper Canada. Sure, he had some important roles to play. Um, he had some, some important things that he accomplished. If we look at somebody like Matthew Elliott in Amherstburg, he was uh, very, uh, very much responsible for helping to establish that town, but he had 60 enslaved people on his property. You know, we want to not erase these people's names because we also want to make sure that every Canadian knows that these individuals didn't just do it on their own. They weren't just individuals who, you know, came from nothing and made it big and, and did all of these great things. They did it very often on the backs of enslaved mm -hmm. Black and Indigenous people or in later um, in later times on the backs of very poorly treated workers. So 
you know, let's be more complete in our telling of the history. I don't think we have to delete all of the, the positive things, but it should be a more balanced approach to the storytelling. It, it's about setting the record straight and, and yeah. actually including the facts that were left out, the important facts that were left out of history, our history, even if they're shameful facts. We need to know about those things so we can put things in perspective. That's right. I really want to thank you for your time, Irene. I know you are in high demand today, so thank you so much for sharing some time with us. All right. Have a great day. Cheers. Irene Moore Davis, president of Essex County Black Historical Research Society, talking about those lookalike plaques. I love them. I think it's a great idea. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Join me weekdays, 9 till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.